0: Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Word, And we pray that as we approach it this morning, your spirit would be softening us so that we can be molded by you into the people you're calling us to be. We pray that you would give us the faith to believe what you have asked us to believe and to follow you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure if I've ever told you this before or not, uh, but I, I really like baseball. Have, have I mentioned that before? Uh, I I like all levels of baseball. I like watching the Cleveland Indians play. It's painful sometimes, but I I still really enjoy it. I like watching IU right now, right? They're in the College World Series. That's fantastic. Uh, And I really like watching my kids play, of course, right? Uh, But I'll be honest, the older they get, the more I like it. Uh, When they were younger, it was a little bit iffy. I mean, was it really baseball? You know, t-ball doesn't count, Uh, it's just Painful beyond belief. Uh, but the older they get, the quality of the baseball is better. Uh, this year, Jake's team has made a transition from little league rules to what they call modified high school rules. And so they've added some elements. The, the baseball field has gotten bigger, and they've added things like leadoffs and pickoffs, uh, drop third strikes, the infield fly rule, which none of the coaches can explain because we still don't understand it ourselves. Uh, But it's so much more like real baseball, it's great. One of the other things they've added this year is this pre-game ritual. They call it breaking breaking it down. Uh, Before each game, someone will say, okay guys, let's break it down. And they get together just outside the dugout and they huddle up and they lock arms and then they start swaying and grunting. And uh, someone yells out, who are we? And the response is, Inferno, Inferno, Inferno. What are we going to do? Win. Now, I, I love watching that kind of thing. That's, we didn't do that on the diving team, right? I mean, a bunch of guys in Speedos huddled up and grunting is just weird. So I watched them do it, and I'm like, that is so cool. I want to be a part of that. We've been continuing on this series, now I'll try to get serious, right? Uh, continuing on this series, marching through the New Testament, all the, the letters of the New Testament, one per week. It's a pretty fast pace. Uh, right now, we're towards the end of it. We're in 1 Peter. And in essence, what Peter does in his letters is he breaks it down for us. Uh, those two questions kind of preoccupy Peter in his letters. Who are we? And what are we going to do? Uh, Peter offers a, a lot of practical wisdom, practical instruction to people who are, who are living in the real world through these letters, but it's all grounded in who we are as the church. He, he's writing to a church uh, that is living in a, in a hostile world, suffering, struggling, and he writes to them so that they would never forget their calling, and what that calling demands of them. So who are we? Who are we, church? Peter's answer to that question is we are a chosen people. We are a chosen people. He opens his letter with these words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, or God's chosen people. And that category, elect, election, chosenness, it's not just a, a Paul thing. It's a Bible thing. And it's one of the prime categories that Peter uses to describe the church. We're the elect ones, the chosen people of God. In the passage that was read from 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter weaves together several Old Testament passages and applies them to the church. He he takes a little bit from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43 that speaks about Israel being God's chosen people. And probably even more importantly, he quotes from Exodus chapter 19. A chapter that you could call Israel's charter as a nation. And Peter takes that, he quotes it, and applies it to the church. Exodus chapter 19, God says to Israel, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Peter takes that, crucial passage for Israel and says, church, this is you. He's not just drawing a simple parallel between Israel and the church. He's not just saying Israel was chosen and church, so are you. He's wanting us, the church, to recall all of God's promises to Israel. And All of God's history in in dealing redemptively and faithfully with Israel. And He's taking us, the church, and placing us in that history, in those promises, in that story and timeline. He says, this is your history. This is your promises. But not just... He doesn't just place us in it. He places us at the very culmination of all that God was doing through Israel. I'm not a, a grammar guy. I said that in the first service and they laughed. You know, I, I butcher the English language well. I'm skilled at it. Some things I notice, though. When Peter is quoting these Old Testament passages, he does something. He changes the verb tenses. When The Old Testament writers, Moses was writing, recording what God had said. It was all in the future tense. If you do this, Israel, God says, then you will be a holy nation. You will be a people for my possession. You will be a kingdom of priests. When Peter quotes it, it's now in the present tense. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. It's happened. Peter's also quoting from Hosea. And he does the same thing. Hosea had said, after God has disciplined you for a while, Israel, because you're unfaithfulness, there will come a time, there will come a time, when he will say to you, you are my people again. And you have received mercy. But Peter, when he lifts that out of the Old Testament and applies it to the church, changes the tense of the verb and says, you are God's people. You have received mercy. He's showing us that the church is everything that Israel was promised it would be. It's the culmination of God's purposes for His people. Nowhere in the whole New Testament is it more explicitly stated than right here that the church is the new Israel. Not just in continuity with Old Testament Israel, but the culmination of what God was doing in His people. We are a holy nation, a chosen people. And not just one ethnic group like the Jews, but a people of all peoples. Now in the church, united to Christ, God's own possession. We're a holy people, a chosen people. But Peter qualifies that. Yes, we are a chosen people... But we're a chosen people living in exile. Uh, that same verse that he uses, he starts the epistle, right? Uh, you are God's elect. The next phrase is strangers in the world. Or exiles in some translations. The passage that was read spoke of us as sojourners and exiles. Exiles or aliens and strangers, or a pilgrim people in some versions. It's all making the same point. All these different translations are making the point that we are God's chosen people, but we're living in a land that's not our home. Oh, we live here, we have homes here and jobs here and vested interest in in peace and prosperity, but it's not truly our home. Peter's been connecting us to Israel, but not to the times when Israel was living in the land and had armies and, and walled cities and in peace. He's connecting us to Israel and their history as a sojourning wandering pilgrim people. That history goes all the way back to Abraham. God took him out of his land and said, Here, this is the land I'm going to give you. And Abraham lived and sojourned in a land that wasn't his home. It was going to be his home, but it wasn't yet. And then God brings Israel out of Egypt 400 and some years later and brings them to the edge of the promised land and they wander for 40 years as sojourners in a land that wasn't theirs. And then later in their history... The people of Israel are taken into exile, into cities that were not their own. And they lived as aliens in Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome. Peter's connecting us to that and says, yes, you're a a chosen people, but you're not yet home. You're in exile. You're in exile. I believe this is probably the most important truth that the western church has forgotten about Christian living this isn't our home yeah again we have vested interest in, in things around us but maybe we're so enmeshed in the things of this world that we've forgotten that our home is not here we have a heavenly home The church is a nation, no matter where on earth you find it, that is not living in its native land. Because its native land is not on this earth. It's the heavenly city. And it's in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, where our affections lie. Where our true treasure is being stored. Where our lives are hidden in Christ. Where our King is and will soon come. That's our home. We live here as wanderers, as pilgrims. It's an incredibly important truth to reclaim. That's who we are. We're a chosen people, yes. But a chosen people living in exile. Not chosen only, not in exile only, both. We have to embrace and live both. Peter's breaking it down for us. Who are we? We're a chosen people living in exile. What are we going to do? That's the next question. What are we going to do? Again, 1 Peter and 2 Peter are filled with just wonderful exhortations on how to live this out. That's the foundation. Who are we? And then how do we live it out? We don't have time to get into all the details. Do you want me to take the time? I, I can... No, we won't. Uh, we don't have all the time to get into all the practical things that Peter says. So go home and, and read First Peter in this light. But there are three kind of overarching things that we can engage this morning. First, as we embrace our identity as God's chosen yet exiled people, we need to embrace God's mission. Election and God's mission go hand in hand. They always have. Being chosen means being chosen for a purpose. And it's not just to hoard God's blessings for ourselves. Election has always, always, always meant election to God's mission in the world. It was true for Israel and it's true for the church. Israel was not chosen so that... God would, could neglect all the other nations. He, he wasn't; Israel was not chosen to their detriment. Israel was chosen for the sake of the nations. It was through Israel that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and it's true of the church too. We are not God's chosen people to the exclusion of the outside world but for the sake of the world so that we can be channels of God's grace to them. Christopher Wright has said it just really powerfully. He said, God doesn't have a mission for the church. God has a church for his mission. God's mission is primary. He wasn't sitting there and he he didn't create the church and think, okay, now, now what do I do with them? Well, let's give them a mission. God had a redemptive mission and he chose a people, the church, to be his instruments, his agents, to carry out his mission of bringing redemption to the world. It's the reason the church exists so mission isn't optional. You know, one of the negative side effects, I think, of the modern missions movement, there's been a lot of positive effects, but one of the negative effects is that we've connected mission with missionary. And missionaries are the ones with mission. Or maybe pastors and elders are the ones with mission. But, but biblically, mission is for the church and every member of the church God's people it's not optional you can't choose the sideline you can't say coach I'll sit out this inning another baseball thing it's for us it's not optional Peter makes this point I think clear he says you're a chosen people a royal priesthood A holy nation so that you might declare the praises or proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into light so that that's the reason to proclaim his excellencies to give him glory that's why you were chosen now now maybe you're thinking Dan when I hear that I think worship not evangelism or mission Proclaim his praises, declare his excellencies. And I'll grant, maybe you're right. uh, Maybe that's worship. But don't draw too fine a distinction, too sharp a line between worship and evangelism. Because worship is evangelism. Evangelism is worship. It ought to be worship. Worship is declaring to God, commending God, Well, to God. Evangelism is commending God, singing His praises, being grateful to God before an unbelieving world. Worship draws people in. Our evangelism ought to be worship, singing God's praises to an unbelieving world. Have you ever struggled... With motivation when it comes to evangelism? Or maybe frustration uh, that you, you share the good news and people just don't seem to be interested? There's a lot of possible reasons for that, a lot of them that are outside of your control. But maybe one of them is that you're sharing Christ more out of duty and obligation. Not out of a place of worship. When we speak to others of Christ, it ought to be filled with affection for Christ, joy in what he has done, thanksgiving, a desire to see them come also in worship. That's what it means to embrace God's mission, to declare God's praises, not just here on Sunday morning. But in front of the nations, in front of the world, to our neighbors and colleagues, our sons and daughters, our parents, to be Christ's ambassadors, or to embrace God's mission, or also to pursue holiness. As part of what it means to be God's chosen people, we are, Peter says, holy. We are holy. But he also calls us to live out holiness daily, practically. When you come to, to 1 Peter and to the passage that we just read, you see that holiness has negative and positive aspects to it. Peter says, Because you're a chosen people and because you embrace this identity as an exiled people, say no to sinful desires. Say no to the passions of the flesh, another translation says. Say no to those things that are waging war against your soul. It's not just that God is displeased when we indulge our sinful passions. It's that those passions are waging war against your soul. And when you indulge them, your soul's capacity for true happiness in God shrinks. I often kind of skip lunch I often skip breakfast too but when I get home after I've skipped lunch I'm hungry right more than once I've caved in and just grabbed the bag of chips out of the cupboard jalapeno chips are my favorite and before I know it the bag is gone and then an hour later dinner's ready and I'm not hungry at all I've filled myself with junk that is probably quite literally killing me. That's what sin does. It it numbs our appetite for the good things, the healthy things, the soul-building things that God offers, the truly satisfying things. And we fill ourselves with things that give us momentary pleasure, momentary relief. We scratch the itch, and our soul shrinks. Peter does not want that for us. He says, say no to those passions that are waging war against your soul. Eat what is healthy. Feast at God's table of the delights He offers. That's the negative side of holiness. Say no to those things that are battling against your soul. The positive side is that we're called to live honorable, good lives in front of the world so that they see our holiness. They see, he says, your good deeds. And that on the day when God visits, they'll give Him glory. Live such appealing lives that even though they slander you and say cruel things about you, the beauty of your life and the beauty of Christ living through you will win them over, and they too will glorify God when He comes. That, in essence, is what my dad used to refer to as, I think, lifestyle evangelism. Don't just speak the good news. Live the good news in such a way that you're drawing other people. That's the positive side of holiness, Live honorable lives. Now, sometimes holiness and mission get, get played off against one another. And sometimes the, the pendulum in, in church history or in, in certain groups swings to one extreme or the other. And you get this idea that if you're going to be really holy, you can't be anything, have anything to do with the world. And so mission gets dropped. Or on the other extreme, people want to really engage culture. That's the trendy way to say it. But sometimes holiness gets dropped. And you begin to see this pattern where it seems like you have to choose between mission or holiness. But biblically, you don't have to choose. Biblically, you can't choose. You must embrace God's mission to the world and holiness. The one who called you is holy, so be holy. You don't have to choose, you can't choose. To be truly holy is to love the things God loves, including the lost world, to be concerned for them, to want to share the good news with them, not to keep them at arm's length. That's not genuine holiness. To cloister ourselves off from the world, to protect ourselves from being contaminated from the world. That's not true holiness. True holiness is to be in the world, concerned for the world, and yet still pursuing God and living His will. You don't have to choose. Now, saying that, let me say it is messy when you don't choose. Oh, choosing one or the other, that's easy. Holding to both and living in that tension, that's hard. It's messy. It requires you to ask questions all the time. Kind of a trivial example have you ever been in the backyard or wherever with your neighbor and they tell an off color joke and you think, do I laugh? It was funny. Do I laugh? Do I one-up them with my own? I've got some good ones. Bob taught me a lot of good ones. Uh, Do I I one-up them? Or or do I make a face like I've been sucking on a lemon to show I disapprove? You want to be in it with them, but you're marching to the beat of a different drummer. And that's a trivial example. More significant ones. Do I befriend this group? They party all the time. How am I going to be friends with them when that's all they do? How do I navigate that? Do I take this role in a play when the language is kind of salty or there's some maybe objectionable scenes in the play? Do I pull my kids out of sports or out of band activities because it requires them to to miss youth group or occasionally church? Those are the questions I hope you're asking your own questions. I hope you're asking them. If you're not, you're not living in the tension. If you're asking them, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. I know I get it wrong sometimes, but you have to ask those questions. If you're not asking them, I guarantee you've got something wrong. Embrace God's mission and pursue holiness. And the third thing I think Peter says is required of us. Is that we expect homesickness. That doesn't emerge maybe as clearly from the text. But one of the constant themes of Peter. Is your exiles, your sojourners, your aliens. You don't belong here. And when you live holy lives. That's highlighted. When you live According to God's purpose and mission, that's highlighted. And the ache, it grows. When you refuse to numb the ache with the fleeting pleasures of sin, you feel it more acutely. I'm not home. I I want to be home. But this world isn't home. And it requires you to wait more patiently. This past October, I, I went back to New York for my sister's wedding and, and got to go back to my hometown. It, it had been 15 years since I had been back to Endicott because my parents don't don't live there anymore. We just did kind of a, a drive through, and I got to show my kids my old house, my neighborhood, my school. Got to take them to eat Speedies. If you're ever driving through Endicott, you got to get Speedies, blue candy apples. There was just something awesome about being in my hometown again. Felt good. You know where else I get that feeling? Here. Not just here in this building, among God's people. Whether it's here or my dad's church or Lynn's church or wherever we happen to be with God's people. Because we're in it together. There's a bond between us that we don't share with the world. So coming here is all the more important as that homesickness grows in us, and it should. Being together with the people of God is all the more important. Expect homesickness and don't neglect the fellowship of believers. Maybe this morning, as we were looking at 1 Peter, something began to stir in you. And you began to think, you know what, the things that I look for joy in, that I pursue pleasure in, that I find meaning in, it's not scratching the itch. There's something just missing in it. It doesn't satisfy like I need it to. And and I just don't feel like I belong in the world. If that's true of you at all this morning, And what C.S. Lewis said, he's just this wonderful apologist of the faith, is so true. He he said, if you find nothing in this world that satisfies, if you have the sense that you don't belong, then maybe you should consider the possibility that you were created for another place, for another home, that that's where you can find significance and joy and belonging. The way you come to that home is through Christ. He's the way. He has opened the door to home. And is asking, come, sinner, come home. If that's you this morning, I would covet the opportunity, so would Bob, to just sit and chat with you about what it means to come home through Christ. Christian, embrace who you are. You are God's chosen people living in exile, but chosen nonetheless, and live out of that truth. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it shapes us, not just to receive your blessing, but to be blessing to the world. Father, you haven't left the world without a witness. You've called us. We pray that we would be faithful in that. We would be faithful in our pursuit of holiness faithful in our pursuit of your mission and father we long for the time when you call us home when you bring home to this world and heal it and restore it thank you in jesus precious name amen